Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And we were together this morning and we were run and then went to start making the podcast and didn't have the equipment. So now we're on Zoom. So apologies for the lesser audio quality to Yolando and the other person who notices and cares. (laughs) (laughs) So what is astonishing you this week? Well, my eight-year-old and I, Matthew, got a chance to attend the spring concert of the African Community Choir here in Charlotte, and it was phenomenal. Um, I should have worn my Fitbit uh, because, you know, African praise music and African worship in general is very physical, and I got a lot of exercise in. Um, It was so good, so wonderful, not not just the singing, but the spirit and the energy. Um, and I think most of the people there uh, were Liberian. And um, so it was just good to be in that community, in that environment. And uh, we were on the way home. And, um, you know, I, I try to have these conversations with Matthew about race and ethnicity and um So normally, you know, I say something like, you know, we're, we're black, you're part black, mommy's Korean. So you're part Korean and you're part black. And so that's usually how we talk about it. But on the ride home, I said, you know, we're part African. And he looked at me like with a question, like, wait, what do you mean? And um, I said, yeah, black and African are the same thing. And he said, for real? Really? That That's us? Um, I was like, yeah. And he said, well, can we go back uh, to that music on next Sunday? And he was so happy to be African. And it was such a delight to my soul. And it made me realize that, you know, I spend um, quite a bit of my time and energy with him. And when I'm talking about race and ethnicity, um, warning, teaching, trying to help him, you know, even at this early age, kind of navigate this society. And um, I was brought back to the the power of celebration, the formative power of celebration. And uh, it just reminded me that, that we need to be much more intentional about that. And, you know, when it comes to being a church leader, how important and powerful celebration is in the church. You know, sometimes, and I'll own this, there's criticism for those folks that we call um, Christmas and Easter Christians. And it, you know, when you think about it, it makes sense because those are times when the church is explicitly celebrating something. And I'm asking myself, well, what if we begin to have this idea every week when we gather that it is a celebration? I think that's not only much more, um, attractive, but also formative in terms of people's growth. Um, In the mainline church, we tend to think the way we're going to get people to grow is we're going to sit them in a classroom and we're going to teach them. Uh, Where we're going to get them to grow is to be in community. And of course, both of those are good ways. They're solid ways. We love those ways. But I think we just forget the power of just joyful 
I want to say lose your mind celebration. And th this concert was a reminder of that. I think, I mean, I definitely think that we do not celebrate enough because we focus too much on what we think we're supposed to be doing from for God instead of centering and grounding ourselves on the goodness of God and and the promises of God and just delighting in who God unchangeably is. And I do think that that leads just to deep um, resistance celebration. So I, I really agree that we do not celebrate enough. I also think that all celebration would be as bad as no celebration because I'm just thinking yeah. of you know, the community of God needs to be a place where people can be real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's, everything, it's not all celebration. I was going to say everything can't be a pep rally. Right. Like it's like grieving people need to be able to come in and not be okay. And also, I mean, just looking at the Psalms and looking at just what deep wisdom there is um, about bringing our whole selves before God and acknowledging our, our, all of our feelings. Um, cause I do think that, you know, there are churches that have nailed all celebration as a church growth strategy. And that kind of faux positivity is really toxic and exclusionary. And I know that's not what you're talking about. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I think when, um, that, you know, when the African diaspora choir is worshiping and celebrating. I mean, it really is an act of resistance and an act of embodying the world that once was, is not fully now, but forever will be, right? Like to say the kingdom of God is in our midst right here. So I, I know that. Um, I just, but I do, I, I really resonate with um, having, having a really authentic and um, intentional practice of celebration, which, you know, we would have to know more about, and we were saying this on the run about the alternative community that we are a part of, that this is, this is deeper than let's just do a few tweaks and, and get a couple of the right people in leadership. And then the kingdom of God, you know, the framework is already in our midst. It's, it's really understanding that we are, um, mustard seed called to the margins people who are um, embodying an alternative community and culture. And, and I think celebration is really a part of that, but also, you know, space for a morning. And um, mm -hmm. because I think it can be um, difficult when we want to be a community for people who are finding the Lord we can't just celebrate. We also have to bring people into the celebration and we can't just say like, Oh, we are having a celebration for all the people who already know <laughs> there has to yeah. be. And in an African slash African-American context, that celebration is done in the mindset or with the knowledge that everything isn't okay. Everything isn't as it should be. And yet what's motivating the celebration is not a denial of hardship, pain, and suffering. It is the reality that God is God. And it and it's, it was so interesting to me that you know, this was a quote-unquote concert, but from beginning to end, it, it was worship. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think like that kind of a worship space, um, it, it is... Um, it's manifesting 
it's an act of, I mean, I know I've said this a couple of times, but it's an act of resistance. It's about saying like, I have the power to rejoice that can't be taken away from me. And it isn't pie in the sky thinking. It's saying these things that are visible and that have impacted my life now, what I know is that they actually are passing away. And the space that I am inhabiting right now is um, as yet invisible, but is eternal. And that, you know, that's just the kind of foolishness through which the kingdom comes. And I just think that's part of the problem when we and our institutions are so focused on getting some visible power. (laughs) Um, And, and so we, you know, we turn away from the true weight of glory and power that we actually already have to try to grasp for visible power and authority and structures that are passing away. So, yeah. And also for me in in that whole event, um, you know, throughout my life, I've read, you know, and heard about how, you know, there's some things that we do as African-Americans, things we do say, ways we worship that are directly connected to the culture on the continent. And you hear this and you see some connections, but when you're in a, in a, a purely African environment, you just see these connections. Oh, that's where this comes from. I thought we just did certain things just because it's particular us. No, this has a long history and it stretches all the way back to the continent. I mean, even in, um, even in food, right? um, Like if you, if you uh, are at a a black person's house, especially around the holidays, because it's often when this is cooked, um, what, what white people call sweet potatoes, most of the time, if you're with black people, they're going to be called yams and they're not yet, but that's, that's what we call those things on, on the continent. So just, just making those kinds of connections in, and uh, that whole um, uh, context of celebration, it was just good for my soul. Well, I mean, especially after the previous, previous week in Confederate land, (laughs) you know what I Thank you for making that connection because I I really didn't think of that. But it was, um, yeah, that was a nice change. It was a dramatic difference than uh, Confederate flag, flag land. Yeah. So what's astonishing you? Um, I think I am um, astonished and and just I mean in the spirit of being honest and authentic, and this isn't bad, but I am astonished at how difficult it is to relaunch and restart um, some of the really core pieces of our community life together. So we came back for in-person worship in June of last year, so almost a year ago, and, you know, we had a lot of um, just limits around the gathering to be um, safe um, and to, you know, um, maintain a culture of preserving life. So we said, we're going to come together for worship. And then that's the only thing we're going to do in the building. And so everything else will just kind of have to wait. And so, you know, it's also really important that we have these communities for, um, you know, just forming relationships and spiritual development and growth and formation um and adult stuff moved pretty seamlessly online i mean you can get a bunch of adults and to gather um via zoom and it's not ideal but also like 
we can suck it up. And like the Holy Spirit is really present in these virtual spaces. Um, but that is really difficult for children and youth just for lots of reasons. And so um, all of this time we've been able to do our, our youth, our youth director, Octavia has just been really heroic and she's been meeting with the youth um, a lot. Um, and right away when we came back, we were doing some stuff after worship um, outside and then it just got cold and it just, you know, was hard. And so now we're trying to sort of get back into our groove of we at the Grove have um, what's called second hour, which is kind of all of the things that would be kind of a traditional spiritual formations. So if you call that Sunday school, whatever you call that, um, we do that in the second hour after worship. The idea being, you know, if, if folks are coming and joining us for worship, there's just an immediate way for them to step into the next level of community formation if they want to. Um, and so, you know, having to, to, to restart that in person, um, it's not been so critical for the adults because we've had lots of ways to build community and do things outside, but to do that work with children and youth is just really important. Um, and so some things we've, you know, we've done, we've been able to do vacation Bible schools twice, which has been great. Um, but, and like I said, the youth group's been doing really well, but we've been just trying to do the work of restarting the children's ministry. And, you know, it's just, it is difficult and that's nobody's fault and it's not bad, but it is just hard. And I think, um, you know, there's, it's just important to, I think, just keep acknowledging that, that um, we're not, everything isn't back to the way it was before and people are really changed. And um, that's just a, a reality we need to accept. And I, I'm really trying to sit with, um, as a leader, I've been reading some Richard Rohr, who's not usually one of my go-to guys, but I'm looking at the um, this book called uh, uh, Spirituality and the 12 Steps. And so just talking about how the, the recovery movement and AA, those 12 steps, they're really just the process of not just, but they are the process of coming alive in Christ that really every person who is following Jesus is invited to walk through. And, and we won't fully have all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit until we, until we do that. And it really requires much in the same way that, you know, the 12 steps, most people know, you know, begin with admitting that sort of life has become unmanageable and that you're really powerless over your sin. Um, and if that sin language is not helpful, don't, don't let that trip you up, but you're really powerless over this force that is, um, that's wounding you and destroying your life and stealing from you. And so needing to turn over to God and to trust, um, the manifestation of God's glory to take you, you know, day by day, step by step into just a way of life that you are wholly incapable of, and that will be totally other than what you're currently experiencing. And I think when people are dealing with an addiction that is visible, we go like, okay, well, that's what you need. But when you're dealing with a sin that can be hidden or, you know, when your life on the surface looks, you know, pretty manageable or even pretty good, we think like, okay, well, I don't need that kind of radical change, right? Like I just need 
um, you know, I need the companionship of Jesus or, or Jesus needs me <laughs> to really help Jesus fulfill the un, unfilled agenda or whatever. But we don't, we don't get that that kind of whole relinquishment and learning a completely new way of being human is necessary for, for all of us. Um, and, and one of the things that Richard Rohr talks about that I think is really helpful is that like post fourth century, so when the Roman empire became the Holy Roman empire and sort of co-opted Christian faith into this empire structure and said, we'll continue to do everything we've ever done, but now we're going to do it as a force for Jesus, which is just an oxymoron, right? Um, You can't, you can't, in spite of myriad attempts to try, you can't enslave or crusade someone into faith in Jesus. And you can't use violence to um, accomplish the ends of the Prince of Peace. And, um, but in Rohr says, and and this is an original to him, I mean, lots of theologians say this, that at that point, um, following Jesus, Christianity shifted from being a follow me religion into a worship me religion. So previous to the fourth century, when Christians had no institutional power, um, you know, it was just people saying like, I have found a way of life that has brought me abundant life in the midst of all of these powers and principalities that are arrayed against me. And, and people who were seeking abundant life um, outside of these power structures that were promising and failing to deliver it would, would, would encounter people. And they would say like, I found a way, you know, to, to flourish and to thrive um, with Jesus and like, come and you can be part of our community. And we, we teach you how we're following Jesus and how we're finding abundant life and salvation with Jesus. And, and um, that often entailed doing lots of crazy things like freeing your slaves and like hanging out with women. (laughs) Like, I mean, just all kinds of, you know, sharing, sharing meals with people who were perceived to be your lesser or giving away money or forsaking like power. And um, when um, Christianity became the official religion of the empire, all of a sudden people didn't, lots of people weren't looking for a new way of life. They were just looking to hold on to what they had. And so they would just like, instead of worshiping the emperor, instead of worshiping whatever cultic God, they would just say, well, I'm going to keep on being me, but I'm just going to worship Jesus now. And so that, so it shifted from, Hey, this is how we follow Jesus. This is how we take the life we have and figure out how to live like Jesus, how to, um, be in community like Jesus, how to share our gifting like Jesus, how to be about healing and liberating like Jesus and visiting the prisoners is shifted from from that into, well, let's just worship, let's worship Jesus. And that may or may not lead to other external changes. And um, I think, you know, the connection for me has been to sit with that revelation and then to sit with just what is difficult in this season of resetting and relaunching and just go like, okay, but what if I will hold myself accountable to not experiencing this season as a trap or a test or a challenge or just something I need to get through so that in the next season, once I've solved these problems, I can follow. But just to say, like, no, in this difficult season of resetting and relaunching, whether I, whether we or I will 
quote, fail or quote, succeed, I am 100% free to follow Jesus, Mm -hmm. like in navigating these challenges. And instead of feeling like this is something that I just need to get through as quickly as possible and preferably without people even knowing that it's hard, like if I can just say to myself and to leaders in my community and the community as a whole, like, hey, we are not actually tasked with building a church for Jesus. We are tasked with following Jesus right now as we are with the problems that we have, with the gifts that we have, with the challenges that we have, like Jesus does not need to show up and get us out of them. Jesus, we have the freedom to follow Jesus in them. And we need to do that mind shift, right? Because I think, and I certainly was taught this, that like, oh, what a wonderful thing it was when Constantine converted to Christianity because then all the challenges of the early believers disappeared. Now they weren't being thrown to lions anymore. And now they weren't excluded from certain jobs or whatever. And like, obviously I'm in favor of not being thrown to lions and I'm glad that Christians were not being persecuted for their faith. But, you know, the answer isn't let, oh, Jesus, take our problems away and then we'll follow you. (laughs) It's to say, no, like, we are, our freedom is to choose to follow or not to choose to follow. And the context is really not ultimately up to us. Um, But the trap is to think, okay, well, right now it's not an option and I need to launch this program or fill this gap or meet this budget deficit. And in order to follow, instead of to say like, no, right now, here and now in this season, what is following look like? That's not at stake. I I am free to do that. So that's what I'm I'm just astonished at just the practicality of like this hard. <laughs> and then I'm astonished at how I so easily focus on what's hard and what I can't do and how difficult it is for me to continue to recenter myself and like, no, no, no. Jesus is the way now. Following Jesus is an option now. If it's not an option now, it won't be later. The challenge will look different, but there will still be a challenge. So that's just sort of what I'm sitting with and being grateful for. And Yeah, that's interesting to me on a couple of levels. Number one, um, when I was meeting with my coach, Tom Bandy, he said to me over and over again, You got to understand that people outside the church are not looking for flashy programs. They're not looking for um, your church rituals. Uh, They just don't care about any of that stuff. But what they are looking for, where you can meet them at a heart hunger level, is that they're looking for um, what he calls champions of the faith. That is people who are following Jesus, walking in the way of Jesus, who can serve as an example for them of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, like that. And to, well, to be an authentic follower of Jesus. And he says that that um, really gets uh, the attention of those folks who would put themselves in the uh, non category. The other thing that comes to mind is that, um, you know, I'm uh, remembering a little bit of church history that after Constantine became the emperor and suddenly Christians were no longer persecuted, 
there was still this drive to follow Jesus uh, in many Christians. And that's when you get the monastic movement. Right. When people start saying, hey, but this whole idea of living in a way that Jesus would have us to live, this is central. And so for some, it meant going away by themselves into the desert. But for others, it meant forming these very intentional communities asking what what would it look like to center following Jesus uh, in, in a community? Right. And I think it's really important, like, because we live still in an empire culture where all around us are these messages that power is at the center and the top. And so if you want to have power, if you want to have influence, you need to get to the center at the top. And you kind of just need to do what you need to do and cut the corners you need to cut the cut in order to get to the center of the top and to really sort of re and, and that has sunk so deeply within the Christian community that we continually talk about the faithfulness of a church or the efficacy of the church in terms of how big it is and how much money it has. So we, we have really allowed the culture of the empire to be superimposed on the gospel instead of to say the gospel, I mean, is clear about saying that, that the kingdom of God is coming, you know, up from the bottom and, and in from the edges. And so I, I think it's really difficult as pastors to continue to both be seeking um, and and looking, you know, being willing to repent and change, and also not to believe that, you know, we don't already have what we need in order to be faithful in the place and the season that we're in, and that we're not called to strive to reach some objective external marker, but to just look at where we are and say, you know, being faithful in my small community, being faithful in, in the midst of the conflict or toxicity or whatever, like that, that seems like it's not a possibility or God isn't here, but actually what the gospel teaches me is yes. <laughs> like, yes, it is a possibility. And yes, it is here. And it doesn't, I, I am only responsible for what is within the sphere of my influence. And if I believe the lie of the enemy of my soul, that, that, it, it only matters if I can get somewhere else. And it doesn't matter what I do within the sphere of my influence. It only matters once my, once that position shifts, like that's when we become a people who are disempowered or who are putting Jesus on as a mascot instead of uh, um, allowing, instead of following. And I, I mean, I have a, a really good friend who talks a lot, like one of her key discerning principles is, you know, what can I do that continually moves me towards the edges? Like, how can I continue to make choices that decenter myself and my will and my wants and my pleasure and keeps me moving towards the people who are on the edges of the communities I'm in and the society I live with and not to, not to save or to fix those people, but just to be in solidarity and in relationship with those people in authentic um in life-giving ways. And because they don't need me, I need them. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's kind of all the stuff that I'm 
Well, for a minute, I want to go back to where you started with this uh, about the the challenges and the difficulty of restarting some things in the ministry. And I'm curious about the why. Is it because um, people have formed some different habits um, during the pandemic? Is it because um, you have fewer people? What what's the the nature of the difficulty? Well, I mean, I would say two things. Um, one is I think people, everybody is trying to pick up and restart their lives right now. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there are just people who, you know, in a perfect world would, would want to give and serve in some ways. And just, that's just not the kind of agency and resources they have to share. I think part of my problem is kind of, it's difficult to discern, um, it's difficult to resist the pressure that we should already be doing something that we're not already doing. Right. So that that's just a level. And I would push back on your coach a little bit um, that I think people are um, looking for certain programs in a church and, and I'm not, you know, and I'm not mad about it. Like I, I think people are saying like, no, I've, I've got children and I want to make sure that there's a place where my children can learn and grow and thrive and be grounded in this community. And I think that, you know, some of the things that people expect in a quote, good church have a lot to do with um, economic resources, right? Like I want a youth group for my teenagers. I want a children's ministry for my kids. I want, especially, I mean, especially I think families and I, and I'm really sympathetic to that because you know, me too. And I think what I've learned just, because of kind of the quote insider position I have as a pastor is that sometimes a lot of those programs are good and they short-term are very good, but they don't necessarily do the deep formative work that we think they're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that there are a lot of children and youth who have been, you know, in those programs and it hasn't, it hasn't had the, um, seed planting that we would hope in terms of choices that they make when they're adults. So I'm not saying they're not important. In fact, I mean, just, I have a deep sense of urgency about um, that kind of programming ministry, not programming, but ministry at the Grove, primarily because I think um, children and youth both are particularly vulnerable and I want to be able to pour into them a different way of seeing the world and seeing themselves. And because I think that's just the way um, that evangelism can and should happen. And certainly the way it happened in my own life. So, um, so yes, that, but, but this is Jesus's church and, you know, we give what we have to give with our flaws and our strengths and trust that the Lord will be in the gaps. And so, yes. Um, We, Zoom is telling us we're running out of time. Zoom is telling us that our our sessions have been too long. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you want to um, say say quickly what you're thinking about? Sure. Well, um, I'm thinking about something I stole from you last week. Um, you were sharing that um, at the end of your sermon, you gave the congregation a challenge. Um, you were preaching. Let's see um, the walk to Emmaus story. And uh, at the end of the sermon, you challenged people to get up right there in the um, uh, worship space to look around to see um, or to look for someone they didn't know um, and to engage them uh, just as uh, the 
two disciples engage Jesus, uh, whom they thought was a stranger, and and to make a plan uh, to get together. And so, you know, I was thinking about that, and it's it's great. Um, I I developed a little more of an introverted version of that when I when I preached the text on Sunday. Uh, and so I asked people to consider um, a, a different Emmaus challenge. We're calling it uh, 30 for 30, uh, 30 minutes for 30 days, uh, go for a walk, engage in some kind of physical activity. But since the two disciples walked with Jesus from Jerusalem to Emmaus, so, you know, um, walking was at the top of the list. And in that 30 minutes, have a conversation with Jesus, talk to the Lord and meditate on scripture. That's part one of the challenge. Part two of the challenge, since uh, these two disciples thought for a long time in that walk that Jesus was a stranger, uh, to ask the Holy Spirit uh, for opportunities in the coming 30 days, uh, whether you're in the grocery store or some other location, uh, to engage a stranger in a conversation. one, because of that text, uh, but also, you know, Bible's very clear that, you know, by showing hospitality to strangers, some have entertained angels unaware. And so how often do we miss an encounter with the Lord uh, because we're unwilling uh, to engage a stranger? And so um, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to uh, uh, having stolen that, uh, uh, the foundation of that idea from you. And so that, that's what's on my mind today. Well, you can't steal from me because anything good comes from the Holy Spirit. Um, but I, I, I do think it's really important that on the one hand, we're, we're really intentional about the distinctiveness of following Jesus and the distinctiveness of Jesus culture. And on the other hand, really um, pressing back against sort of a spirit of eliteness or, or cult, right? And I think you're like, obviously you're right. That scripture again and again, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament equates strangers with, not equates, strangers are messengers of God. And so that's just a really cool thing in our culture to say that the people we don't know are not unknown to God and the people Mm -hmm. that we don't know um, and the people that we're not already connected with are, are sacred and holy and have a, have something good um, to, to pour into us. And so, you know, that's such an anti-tribal um, and really anti-empire piece mm-hmm. of culture to be able to say, just because I don't know you doesn't mean that I don't, you know, I wouldn't be enriched by knowing you and by having you in my life. And that sort of mutuality um, is, is just a really beautiful thing. So because the empire culture says, if you are worth knowing, I would already know. I'd already you know you. Right? right. Right. Which I will say, I mean, I very much experience as part of the quote connectional nature of the PCUSA, like our denomination really prides itself on being connectional. And so the, the bright side of that is this idea that like, we know one another and we help one another and we um, are in partnerships in all kinds of ways. And that is great. Um, the, the shadow side of that is it can lead to a culture where people de facto believe that if I should know you, I already would. And since I don't know you, you're not worth knowing. I'm already connected to all the people who are worth being connected to. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, don't realize that that's what the culture feels like. But, but those of us who, you know, come in from the outside, we can tell you like, I mean, it does. (laughs) And, um, so that's something that we can overcome if we're interested in it. But I just think it runs deep and people really feel like, no, 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 no. I, I am one of the, I am known and I know, 
and I don't want to disrupt that um, by encountering other people. So yeah, I think that's great. It's really cool. What are you thinking about? Um, I just started listening to um, the audiobook version of um, a book by Scott McKnight that my friend Kim Kyle recommended. I like um, him a lot. Derringer. Yeah, I don't, I'm not super familiar with him, but he's written a book called A Church Called Tov, and yes. Tov is the Hebrew word for goodness. Um, and he's really sort of saying um, in, in response to some of the really tragic breakdowns in very visible mega churches to say mm-hmm. like part of the answer, yes, is boundaries. But the deeper answer is we have to, and we say this all the time, we have to be a community that really knows what we are for and what we are trying to create and not just communities that say like, this is what we're against and this is what we are going to protect ourselves from. And so, and I think it's, it is this paucity of imagination. Like we really don't know we don't spend any time allowing the Holy Spirit to give us a vision for what Shalom is and for what an alternative community could be. And so we we content ourselves with just trying to make kind of a copy of a copy of the dominant culture, the empire culture, and kind of mascot some Jesus over it instead of saying like, no, we actually not in a way that dehumanizes or others or or demonizes people who don't who don't follow Jesus, but we actually just have a different vision of what goodness is and what honor is and what power is. And we need to be really casting vision and celebrating um, and centering what is good and really letting goodness be defined by um, the word of God, which is scripture and Jesus and not goodness that is, you know, what the culture says, no, this is good. So I'm just, just getting into that. And I, I recommend it and finding it really meaningful. And I'm super stressed by this countdown clock that is going on soon. So um, thanks for listening to this super short version of, <laughs> um, of the podcast. And if you want to find more about what God is doing at Derida Prez, you should go to their website, which is D-E-R-I-T-A deridaprez.org. You should go to their pub podcast and listen to Yolanda's messages or check out their YouTube channel or join them for worship at 1030. All the info is on the website. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org or check out our podcast or our YouTube channel or join us for worship on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. This is stressful. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.